Hi, I'm Lara, founder of Hope Scarves and My Hopeful Life. My dream for this podcast is to have conversations with people facing a wide range of challenges and talk together about how we live a hopeful life. We're starting with an intentional focus on metastatic breast cancer because this is close to my heart as I live with this terminal diagnosis. Then we'll expand our conversations to talk about a wide range of topics. And together, we'll find our way as we navigate our hopeful life. This is a podcast of honest, raw, authentic conversations about how to live a hopeful life. Not in the rainbows and unicorns kind of way. Oh no, we're talking about hard stuff, cancer, loss, fear, and much more. And also the good stuff, love, laughter, connection. We're going to take time together to talk about how to find light in the darkness. I'm Lara McGregor, founder of Hope Scarves and the Hopeful Life Project. Join me as I navigate my own way of living joyfully with a terminal illness and talk to others who have also found a way to live a hopeful life. Today we talk with Jen Camposano, whose story with metastatic breast cancer is truly like no other. I met Jen at an metastatic breast cancer research conference and was instantly taken by her warm spirit, beautiful writing, and advocacy work. Diagnosed with stage four cancer at 32 when her son was just five months old, her story will touch your heart and also make your jaw drop when you hear the twists and turns she endured. I'm excited to take time together with Jen today to listen and learn from her beautiful story. Hi, I'm Jen. For me, living a hopeful life means continuing to advocate for better research and treatments for those living with metastatic breast cancer. Jen, welcome to a Hopeful Life podcast. Hi, Laura. Thank you. I'm so glad to have this chance to talk together and to pause both of our crazy motherhood, homeschooling, pandemic, <laughs> crazy world lives, yeah. and just um, just connect and talk about um, your story and uh, just take a moment to reflect on what we're grateful for and um, just celebrate your beautiful story. So... Thank you for taking time to be with me. It's so good to, to be with you and to chat with you. And, um, you know, we met, I, I think, I don't know, in person probably for the first about four years ago. And I just um, immediately felt this connection with you. And, um, and I, I mean, I, I just love how you live your story and your life. And I love seeing your updates on mm. social media. And um, and I love that you're doing this podcast. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Well, the feeling was mutual. <laughs> um, Jen, I, fa- I first learned about you reading your blog, um, which is called 
Booby and the Beast. Booby and the Beast. Yeah. <laughs> tell us, let's just start there. Um, tell us a little bit about your breast cancer diagnosis, how old you were, where you were in your life, and um, just how that went down for you. Okay. Um, so I was diagnosed with uh, what they thought was metastatic breast cancer straight out of the gate when I was 32 years old. I had a five-month-old son. Um, so was, he was our first child. And um, so I was in the throes of new motherhood and trying to figure out nursing and um, and what that looked like with sleep deprivation and my job as I was a practicing attorney at the time. And, um, and I had this lump that just wouldn't go away. And my, my doctor kept telling me, Oh no, I'm sure it's just mastitis. Take, you know, hot showers, take some Tylenol and it wouldn't go away. So I went and got a second opinion and the second doctor said, I'm sure it's nothing, but you know, if, when you can get in with her, why don't you go see, this surgeon, and she um, was on vacation. It was summer. And so, long story short, by the time I was able to get in to see her, a a couple of months had passed. Um, And she kind of took one look at me on a Friday afternoon in August, almost nine years ago now. And she said, or more than nine years ago, and she said, can you go to radiology this afternoon? Um, and so they they took a whole bunch of images, and the radiologist came in and said um, that afternoon and said, uh, "You know, I'm pretty concerned by what I see." And she said, I, "I'm 99% sure that this is breast cancer." Mm-hmm. You know, and that just it felt like the walls kind of caved in, and everything mm-hmm. just that sinking feeling of like. Mm-hmm. And I, my first response to her because I had zero experience with cancer was what else could it be mm-hmm. uh, thinking, uh, you know, this is, how is this even possible? I didn't know that people my age got breast cancer. Um, how, you know, am I going to die and leave my young child? And I, a million things kind of went through my head all at once. But um, I just remember laying there on the table thinking, that's not, that can't be right. What else could this be? Oh, gosh, I felt those yeah. same feelings. <laughs> I was like, You've got to be kidding me. I, I, it just feels like the whole world crashes down around you and you, the sense of disbelief is kind of overwhelming. Absolutely. And I remember, um, feeling as I, I drove home, um, from, which it was only a couple of miles, but I drove home and just felt like this cold fear kind of creeping up. It almost felt like a physical, Mm -hmm. you know, tendrils kind of creeping up the back of my neck and thinking like, Oh, that's what they mean when they say, you know, that they were cold with fear. Um, Mm. It was a physical sensation. And I got home and had this conversation with my husband in our kitchen. And um, we had, you know, he said some expletives and I said, I can't believe we're having this conversation. Um, And, then we sort of hopped straight into research because at that point, all I knew was I had this, you know, large lump in my right breast, but we didn't have any, we hadn't had a biopsy yet. I didn't have any imaging done yet other than the um, ultrasound at the, at the radiology clinic, but I hadn't had any full body imaging yet. Um, 
And so I remember that first, because that was a Friday afternoon, and that first weekend, we sort of looked up breast cancer statistics for, you know, in young women. And at the time, this was in 2011, at the time, at least, everything that we saw was sort of, you know, well, this is very good news, and this is, you know, 99% of people beat it. And um, I just... And there was, you know, one little footnote that I saw on one website about, you know, but if it's stage four, the prognosis is much worse. But that was it. It was all sort of, everything will be great. You know, everybody beats breast cancer and rah-rah cheerleader kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And as more information came out about what I was actually looking at and the medicines I would need and the... um, what we the staging that I, I was presumed to have, um, it became very clear to me that the information just wasn't um, completely honest. That was the information that was out there, and um, it led me to start to investigate why and try and talk about it more. Mm-hmm. And so, when were you at that point diagnosed metastatic? Did you have a scan that? showed that it was beyond your breast? So I had, um, they got me in on Monday for a biopsy, needle core biopsy of the tumor itself. And then later that week, I don't remember what day it was, but later that week I did, I went in because the tumor was large. It was um, about four and a half centimeters. And it came back that it was HER2 positive and grade three and just extremely aggressive. They sent me in for a PET scan and um, MRI, and the PET scan came back and showed signs. Um, I, I had spots in my chest wall and in my lungs and outside of my liver um, and on my spleen, which a, a lot other than lungs and chest wall, a lot of those spots are areas where metastases aren't super common for breast cancer. But because of what they saw in my lungs, they said, you know, in chest wall, they said, look, this has spread. The treatment is the same. We're going to start you on chemotherapy and some targeted t- treatments for it being HER2 positive. Um, here we go. And I kind of thought, okay, well, if, if the treatment is the same and we're going to um, you know, crush this, then let's do it. And so I started, I actually had neoadjuvant chemo. So I had chemo prior to surgery. Um, and it we started two weeks to that, to the day that I had seen my surgeon. So Hmm. it was, it was very fast. Yeah. So you had gotten this diagnosis that it had spread to Mm -hmm. multiple places Mm -hmm. and saw yourself in that little tiny footnote at the bottom of the, all the metastatic pinkness with this metastatic diagnosis and the treatments that followed for years were pretty harsh then trying to combat the metastasis and um, you really endured a lot of hard therapies. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, the treatment for breast cancer, as far as we've come with research is not, um, it's not easy. It is not meant you know, I think for for people who are early early stage, breast cancer treatment is very harsh. But 
but you're through it in a matter of, you know, six months or a year. And that was sort of what my nurse had said to me at the very beginning was this next year is going to be a marathon, Mm -hmm. but you'll get through it. And then it went on for three and you know, it went on for four and a half years that I was in treatment. And for some people, I mean, the goal is to, to live as long as possible. And so I have friends who've been in treatment continuously for a decade or more. And which is amazing that they have this time, but the treatment is still very harsh. It doesn't get, you don't have a, a reduced, um, I don't know, level of harshness just because you have to be in it longer. Right. Um, it is something that so few people understand. And I answer constantly when I, you know, people ask me, how many more chemos do you have? And I say, hopefully a lot. Right. <laughs> and they're looking at me kind of confused. And I'm like, um, well, I'm on this chemotherapy until it stops working. Right. And so I want to be on it for as long as possible. And I don't have a countdown towards the to the last chemo and a chance to ring the bell when I walk out of there, you know, victorious, having beat cancer. It's an ongoing experience. And so you were in the throes of that, different treatments, trying to address the metastasis, seeing some some stability and some progression and living in this world of ongoing therapies and the unknown and the uncertainty. And you found your voice as an advocate, um, sharing your story. I know that you were, um, brought a lot of inspiration to people just in your very honest vulnerability and the, in the writing that you do. Um, it's just so beautiful. How did, being an advocate and writing your blog help you through those years? Uh, thank you. Um, it was it was very cathartic for me um, to, and I have on and off through the years, I've kind of I've journaled and sometimes I'm at it every night and then other times I go a few months. And um, But going through this, it became sort of an, just what a blog is an online journal for me in a way to, I mean, at the very beginning, I thought, well, I don't have, I can't really email out every single different person in my life and keep them. I don't have time for that kind of a communications mm-hmm. <laughs> epicenter and to keep up with a baby and to keep up with my job. And so I thought here, here's a way that I can keep everyone updated. But then it very quickly became here's a way that I can process all of the stuff I'm going through and um, kind of allow people to a, a peek into what this world looks like. Yeah. Um, and, and from there, it became, you know, I, I got so much support from the community, from the other women who had gone through similar things. And I got connected to other young women who had gone through breast cancer and this whole world that I didn't know existed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, and in my previous life, before moving out here to Arizona, I was a lobbyist in DC. And so I knew how important policy was and I knew how important, um, particularly around research, that the federal government has a big role, I think, to play Mm -hmm. in funding that research and in taking care of public health. And um, and so I I thought, how can I, you know, is there a way that I can use my voice and my story and tell my story, 
before Congress and get back there um, and and have people hear why this is important. And so any opportunity that came up, I kind of just raised my hand and said, I'll be there. Can I come? You know. And what and a, what a special way knowing you have this voice that not only are you going through this treatment, but you're able to do something meaningful to help other people and to hopefully advance research and funding. And um, it just, I know I feel a sense of peace when I can, I can't do anything about the fact that I have metastatic breast cancer. So but I can do something about raising money for research and I can do something about showing this reality and by the actions are healing, even though it doesn't really change the reality. It's like by being, by being a part of hopefully making progress, you feel some kind of peace. Um, Yeah, absolutely. You were um, going through, all these therapies, you were advocating, you were writing your blog. And then, Jen, you had maybe the biggest (laughs) surprise uh, change in the story. What do you call that when all of a sudden the story shifts and like um, plot twist? That's what I was thinking of. (laughs) You had this like really insane plot twist. Y'all, you are not going to believe this. Jen, what happened? Um, I guess I'll start. I'm going to start crying. I'll start where my husband tells me to start. Mm-hmm. Um, I had this weird little nub of a, um, it looked, it was like the size of a pencil eraser um, thing, kind of looked like a keloid scar on my left elbow in the early months of 2016. And so I went into my dermatologist and I said, what is this? I didn't injure it. Have, you know, have I been doing too many planks? And she kind of laughed at me and um, she said, you know, I I really don't know what it is, but let's take a biopsy. And of course my, then my head starts spinning and I think I need some more Xanax because I don't like that word biopsy. Um, And a few weeks went by and I hadn't heard anything. So I didn't really think much of it. And then I got a call, um, President's Day, it was right before President's Day weekend. And she said, huh, it came back as this autoimmune disease called sarcoidosis. Have you heard of it? And I thought that I racked my brain and I thought, you know, there was a, a little note in one of my PET scans a couple of years prior that had said something like, this um, is not acting like metastatic breast cancer have, and this was a radiologist who had written it. And it said, has a secondary, um, a secondary cancer been ruled out or a non-malignant process such as sarcoidosis. And I had questioned my oncologist at the time and he said, oh, don't worry about that. That's, you know, it's clearly not that. But as soon as she said the word, it brought that back to the front of my head. And so I called my, I said, you need to talk to my oncologist. So my dermatologist and my oncologist had a conversation. I was scheduled for chemo on, it was leap year. So it was February 29th. 
And I went in and he said, you know, let's, I think this is our answer. I think we'll take you off of chemo. And I said, no, <laughs> I, <laughs> I am not going off of chemo because of a biopsy of something the size of a pencil eraser on my elbow. Um, let's go ahead. And I said, let's see what the next scan shows. And so I had chemo that day. I had a PET scan two and a half, three weeks later, and the PET scan lit up all over the place. It lit up in ways that it hadn't in years. And um, and at the time I had been on, when I say I got chemo, it was actually, uh, I should be clear, it was a targeted treatment, Kedsyla. Um, and I had been on Kedsyla, which is a monoclonal antibody for, um, and a, a monoclonal antibody drug conjugate, I guess. And it, I had been on that for almost three years. Um, and I, so the PET scan lit up, it showed spots again in my lungs, it showed spots, um, in my, um, uterus and uh, like all over the place. Mm -hmm. So in my spine as well, um, so I went in for a whole series of tests that it was by this point, late March. Um, I had a pelvic ultrasound. I had a spine MRI. I had, um, and then I had a lung biopsy, uh, which I had never had before. And the lung biopsy came back as sarcoidosis. Mm. Um, everything else came back as sort of inconclusive. Oh my gosh. Um, and so my, my oncologist said, okay, look, we have your spot on your elbow. We have your lungs that are showing up as sarcoid. Um, why, why don't we give you a break anyway? It's time. It would be time to take a break because you've been on this drug for so long. And if things start going out of control, we can put you back on it. Oh my gosh. Okay. So like, <laughs> I'm like, my mind is like exploding right now. So you're like, so maybe I don't have metastatic breast cancer, but maybe I do. We don't really know. So we're going to just try it out. Not having treatment. I mean, like, <laughs> yes, was, I mean, yes, you can't even like fully like celebrate maybe this bizarre misdiagnosis, like absolute chance at li a new life because you're all not really entirely sure. So you're living in this completely mixed up space of yeah. given this maybe little glimmer of hope that you've had this misdiagnosis that maybe you are not living with a terminal illness. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just felt like I literally, I think I wrote, so I, I felt like I was a tightrope walker and they were taking away my safety net. Yeah. And I, I was like, I, I don't know if I'm ready to go off of this. And he said, well, just try, oh. just trust me. And that was in, um, so that was the, I had my lung biopsy the end of March. So this was April. I didn't have another scan until June. And then the June scan came back completely no evidence of any disease oh came back God. completely clear. And, and then I remember the radiologist who wrote that report said, you know, not client patient seems to have uh, patient seems to have responded completely to intermittent treatment. <laughs> and I said, but there's been no intermittent treatment. Patient seems to have responded to having a break. <laughs> like yeah. Being, being on uh, her own to be well without intervention from medical people. Yeah. It was, um, and so at that point I thought, 
okay, I can breathe a little bit and maybe think about celebrating. But my first response when my oncologist told me that was just, I just started sobbing and I felt so much, I don't know if anger is the right word. It was just a a grief Mm. that I think grief for like the emotional roller coaster that my family had been through and for, um, you know, my son was five by that point. And so his, the whole first five years of his life had been watching me, you know, be on the couch because I was so fatigued from treatment or, um, you know, not having the energy to play with him or, and I, I thought, like, would I have parented differently? Would I have, um, you know, lived my life differently? And, and I, it just, the initial emotional response surprised me. I expected to be elated and I just wasn't, Mm -hmm. I was, I was mad and I was sad and I was, you know, sort of, I also had this existential, like, okay, what does that mean for my advocacy? What it, how can I be a voice for metastatic patients if I'm not one anymore? Mm-hmm. And how is the community going to respond to this? And yeah, so um, many feelings. I mean, that is just there's so many layers to that to making sense of this new information. What did you do to kind of? get through that time? How did you process it? Oh my gosh, so much therapy. Oh God, thank God for therapy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You have to talk Uh, it out. You have to process. You have to reflect and oh gosh, yes. So yeah, I I mean, I I had, I went through quite a bit of of therapy to, I was like, why am I feeling this way? And why am I not just completely relieved? And um. And, and I got there. I mean, I, I got to the point where I was extraordinarily grateful. And, um, but it's also, I mean, I think just being in this community for as long as I have been and had been at the time, I was still losing friends mm-hmm. too. And I wanted this outcome for everyone. I wanted everyone to get a second chance or to be told like, just kidding. Your scans were wrong. It's actually this other disease that's, you know, not going to kill you. Right. And, um, and so I, and I also, I talked to a lot of my friends in the metastatic community and said, what do I do with this information? And what do, how do I, um, how do I come out if you will? And, right. And, uh, you know, people said, write about it. And I think you'll be okay. And, you know, we're going to be happy. Most people are going to be happy for you. And they were, and, right. you know, it just, I think it speaks to the beauty of, um, of other advocates who mm-hmm. just said, you know, you, we need your voice. We need the voice of someone who has lived this experience and isn't going to die from this disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Most likely. Well, you spent so much time coming to peace with this diagnosis and the uncertainty of living with metastatic breast cancer, and you had your feet firmly planted in this world of metastatic breast cancer and the uncertainty and terminal illness reality, and then you got just like yanked out of the muck and put in this other reality, and that is so hard to process, Um, and I think there's just this piece of 
survivor guilt that is real. And it's even, I even feel like a little bit of like wellness guilt um, because I had five, after my metastatic diagnosis, I had five years of durable stability and no evidence Mm -hmm. of disease. And I ran marathons and climbed mountains and rappelled down waterfalls. And I would feel guilty sharing my wellness yeah. Because I always had to be like, but this is not the norm. And right. let me let me point with everything I have over at these people who are struggling and chal- and barely able to get out of bed and take a shower. This is the reality of metastatic breast cancer. I am not. I am an outlier. And I and it was someone who um, has since died, a friend, who helped process that with me. And said, when I see you healthy and smiling, I your joy is my joy. And I said, when I see you hurting, your pain is my pain. And we carry each other both through the pain and through the joy. And how beautiful is that? Uh, it's it's yeah. it's so it's so important. And I think that is true. In the metastatic community and, you know, facing cancer, I think it's true in so many other experiences of pain and hurt that we're stronger together. And with empathy towards each other's experience, we can celebrate the joy and then we can help lift up when we're in the pain. And I'm so glad that you have found your way through that process and that you experienced that support as you muddled through this changing diagnosis and reality. Yeah, I think it really, it speaks to, I don't know, the power of women Mm -hmm. together to uplift each other and um, really to the power of of women who have been through um, the horrific experience that breast cancer is and and want to see each other through to the other side. Mm-hmm. And like you said, you know, sharing in both the joy and the pain. Um, but it, yeah, it really, it took me a while. It was not an overnight mm-hmm. process by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. And now here we are in 2020. Lord help us all. Um, <laughs> but you have since, so how many years now has it been since you have gotten this new diagnosis? So you you did have stage two it was cancer? So they haven't actually told me what okay. the, it was either stage two or stage three, as far as I can tell from the size and lymph node involvement. So we know you had breast cancer, like that mm-hmm. it's confirmed. So that was, that, is that was definitely breast cancer, but the, the what was thought to be the mis- metastatic disease was instead this autoimmune disease. And Correct. now that we have this true diagnosis, how long have you had this this time? It's been almost four years or more, a little more than four years, I guess. So, And how are you doing? I'm really good. I'm really good. We, um, and I, and I still go to therapy, <laughs> but we, um, so about, let's see, that was June of 2016. And then the following spring, I went to the Young Survival Coalition um, annual conference in Oakland. And that was sort of my first time being around a whole bunch of other uh, breast cancer patients and survivors and 
And I remember, you know, they're handing out the little lanyards that are color coded based on like, you're either one year out or three years out or five years out or you're metastatic. And, and I, always I don't wear, know which one. I always wear two of those damn lanyards okay. because I'm like, for one, I have been living with breast cancer for 13 years. Yeah. And I'm metastatic. And I want to to show both of those. So I always ask for both the lanyards. <laughs> so I didn't know what to do. I was like, uh, well, yeah. I ended up hanging out that most of the weekend with the metastatic women. Right. Um, so your people. Because they were my people. And I, um, and I, but I felt t- like I, I had a couple glasses of wine, but literally like two. And I felt awful and I felt almost hungover for like a whole week afterward. And I finally, I was like, what is going on? Why do I feel so terrible? And on a whim, I, I said, well, I should probably take a pregnancy test. <laughs> and lo and behold, I was pregnant, ah! um, which was such a shock. Oh my gosh. Completely um, off the table. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had been through chemo pause, chemo induced menopause, chemo pause twice and things were, all out of whack. Nice. Um, I, I just, I, I don't even know how it happened, uh, but she, uh, so she was born in November of 2017 and she is a complete spitfire. Uh, my husband says she is the only egg that could have survived <laughs> everything that my body <laughs> through all the, all the changes, all the chemo. It was like, because she is such a feisty little rascal. And, I love it. Um, but oh. yeah, she's great. And Life is crazy. What a is, um, beautiful miracle. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. She's something. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What a whirlwind of a story, Jen. Yeah. I mean. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. And I just, I want better outcomes for my friends, for for the women I don't know, for the, you know, the men who get breast cancer because it does happen. But I just, I want better outcomes. I want um, treatments to be less uh, invasive and harsh. And, um, you know, a a very good friend of mine died last month. um, And it wasn't actually from the breast cancer. It was her body had a toxic reaction to the chemo that she was on. Um, And it just devastates. I mean, it devastates me no matter how my friends go. But, um, you think, God, couldn't something have been done if it wasn't even the cancer that killed her? Couldn't it have, you know? Um, we think and so be further along in therapies right. and in options. We've been running a lot of pink races and billions of dollars, and we're still losing 115 people a day to breast cancer. Every, every day. Every day. Just in this country. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So that's why I love what Hope Scarves does so much. I love that you raise so much money for research and connect with these, you know, amazing scientists around the country doing really cool things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I hope that we can see more research and more science coming out of um out of Washington and out of our local governments and out of partnerships between the two. Um, and that, you know, I, I just, I, I'm always hopeful that mm-hmm. that research will get us there mm-hmm. soon. 
Me too. Me too. You know, you can't, you can't get lost in the despair and the sadness because it just pulls you down. So we find our hope in research and we find support in our shared stories and we learn from the vulnerability and the experiences of others. And I know your story is going to touch a lot of hearts and I'm just, you know, I am with all the other ladies and, and men who support you in this crazy plot twist and are still so glad that you are standing strong with metastatic breast cancer advocacy, but also that you have this whole new lease on life and this beautiful future ahead of you that is no longer burdened by metastatic breast cancer. It's just, it's such an amazing miracle. And I am just, I'm so glad to take time to, to share your story today and for people to hear it and, um, learn from you and to just recognize there's miracles all around us. Thank you, Lara. Mm. Thank you. Mm. So much. Okay. So let's turn from this deeply emotional conversation (laughs) to the lightning round where I just, I'm going to ask you a couple questions and you're going to help answer these and, um, just a little lighthearted fun to wrap up our conversation today. Okay. Fill in the blank. Hope is. Oh boy. Um, friendship. Mm. We know a hopeful life is not just realized in the perfect happy moments, but also in the struggle. When you are in one of those hard moments, what gets you through? My children. And they also create the hard moments sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Double-edged sword. Exactly. (laughs) The paradox of motherhood. Um, Besides your family, faith, and phone, what is something you can't live without? Hiking. I love that you are well enough to do all the amazing hiking that you can do now. Keep going. um, Thank you. I think of you on that mountain every day. Because <laughs> I climbed that Camelback Mountain in Arizona with my lung before I knew I had this pleural effusion in my lung. And, you know, it's like you're climbing over boulders. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like such a, a – it is a really rigorous, short, but very rigorous and very steep hike. And – um I was like dying. And my husband was like, I'm like, are you dying? Is this so hard? And he's like, no, not really. I'm like, yes, surely this is so hard. I mean, I look back on it now and I'm like, oh my God, I really couldn't breathe. Like I was right. like so yeah. determined to get up yeah. that mountain, but I could not breathe. So well, um, I'm so glad you can breathe and that you are climbing. Keep going. Keep climbing. Mm. Okay. An ordinary moment in your life. That is filled with hope. Uh, I think just uh, truthfully getting up in the morning and that first, you know, warm cup of coffee and the kids are still like still in their pajamas and all snuggly on the couch. And um, it's that first bit in the morning when it's still kind of dawn like light out and, um, you know, and you're having your coffee and you think today could be a really good day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
And then someone starts screaming and somebody else throws a Lego and, and it all kind of falls apart. But, but in, in the beginning, yeah. there's that, that moment every day where I think. Yes. And when you hug those kids, I know, I know you feel that deep in your heart. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I know. Okay. Some people call it a bucket list. I call it a wonder list. What is on your wonder list that will make your hopeful life no longer burdened by metastatic breast cancer? What will make your hopeful life complete? I really, really want to publish my story mm. to finish. I, I have pieces of it written in a hundred different places and I want to cohesively put it together in a, in a memoir format and, and publish it. So that's out there for, um, for other people to, I don't know, hold on. Like you said earlier, hold on to the belief that miracles do happen. And, um, and also so that, you know, doctors think about multiple right. things right. at the beginning of their diagnosis so right. that it could be other things. It doesn't, it's not always what it first seems. Mm. You have to write that book, Jen. It's hard. I know. I want to mm. write a book too. Maybe I'm, I have a hundred different places of the start of my book. Maybe you and I should be like accountability buddies to get to write. I love book. that. <laughs> yes. I love that. <laughs> Look at, I just said it. It's like out in the universe now. So okay. Now it has, okay. To, now it has to happen <laughs> because is it not true that like you can find 555 other things to do besides sit down and write for your book. I'm like, oh, absolutely. All of a sudden, I'm like, my fridge. Oh, yeah. I'm like, you know what is really, really important? Alphabetizing my spice rack. And it's <laughs> imperative that that is done. That's happened now. <laughs> oh, okay. Let's do that. Let's, okay. Let's be friends on that journey. And I would love that. That's way more special and important than, you know, chasing Twitter every night. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. Gosh, thank you for taking time today to, to just share your story and chat with me about everything that you have experienced and just present this story to our listeners so that they can see this very different perspective of metastatic breast cancer and also how your life has unfolded in beautiful ways and the work that you do in advocacy is continuing to help so many others. And um, together, you know, we're just going to live this hopeful life one day at a time. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me. I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> <laughs> it was just so much fun. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to our stories. I hope you take away something you can apply to your hopeful life. Help keep the Hopeful Life momentum going by sharing our podcast and take a minute to rate and write a review. If you'd like to learn more, check out our websites, myhopefullife.org and hopescarves.org.